Welcome to our podcast, Immunization Morning Commute, The Remarkable History of Vaccines. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck. In this episode, Dr. David Rosenthal and Dr. Eric Choi-Pena discuss vaccine history and development. What was the world like before vaccines? Drs. Rosenthal and Choi Pena trace the vaccine story from the eradication of smallpox to the current COVID-19 vaccines. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash vaccine four. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Rosenthal is medical director in the Department of Medicine and Pediatrics at Northwell Health in Great Neck, New York. Dr. Eric Choi-Pena is the Director of Global Health at Northwell Health in New Hyde Park, New York. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Rosenthal will begin our discussion. Well, welcome to everyone here. My name is David, Dr. David Rosenthal, um, and I'm here with Dr. Eric Choi-Pena, and we'll be talking today about the world of vaccines. So let's kind of begin with a really good introduction and kind of discussion. Really, what was the world like before vaccines and what were we looking at before vaccines existed, Eric? Hey, David, thanks. Um, This is something that I think in recent months we've been reminded of, but normally takes a little bit of a memory jog to realize kind of where we've come, Um, you know, with smallpox being one of the uh, first vaccine-prevented illnesses that, you know, resulted in thousands of deaths per year. Um, to things like polio, which um, I would wager that most clinicians in the United States have not seen a case of polio, uh, to measles, rubella, and um, now on to COVID and other vaccine-preventable illnesses that we're battling. But the, you know, the, the world before vaccines was a world that was, uh, was very different. And uh, you know, in public health school, we're taught that vaccines are some of the most cost-effective public health interventions that you can do. And we've seen that uh, proven over and over again. Right. I mean, I remember back, you know, when we're thinking about smallpox, three out of every 10 people who had smallpox ended up dying. And it's certainly been around since the, uh, you know, since the pharaohs and the mummies, we certainly have identified smallpox that have been around for that long. But really, we've had some phenomenal eradication with smallpox that's happened that's been so much more significant, um, that's really caused a significant change in what we're seeing and, and what's happening. And really, um, in the 1970s, really was the last time that we had someone that died of smallpox. And so we've really pretty much completely eradicated smallpox as a result. But I know that measles is a little bit more of a different story. And and we've had some recent uh, situations with measles that have kind of been a little bit more challenging recently. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things about measles is one of the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to low vaccination rates, because it's one of the first outbreaks of, of infectious disease that you see, and you see it even when the vaccination rates drop into the low 90s, you can start seeing sporadic outbreaks. And it's it's certainly humbling. And when you think about all of the technological advances medicine has had over the past 50 or 60 years, I don't think any other technology has eradicated disease the way the vaccines have. Absolutely. And I think you know, measles, we were hoping to kind of get rid of by the 80s, but I know we were in the United States able to completely clear it by 2000. But then, of course, we know that there have been you know, new cases that have really spot that have really come up, in, including in the U.S., more than 650 cases in 2014. And then again in, in 2019, where we had almost 1,300 cases in the United States. So 
The concern is, is really that it's important for us to continue to maintain high levels of vaccination to continue to maintain that level of herd immunity and prevent um, outbreaks within certain specific populations. Yeah, and, it's, and specifically a challenge when, you know, you, there's no recent memory of the disease, which is, I think, what happened with, with measles in the United States is that, you know, it was declared eradicated. And then the vaccine hesitancy and the uh, anti-vax movement had a little bit more of a, of a louder, more resonant voice because there was just no examples of the disease in the United States. And I think that, unfortunately, led to some of the vaccine hesitancy we're seeing. And, uh, you know, it's still, I mean, I, as someone who works globally, I have a lot of respect for measles. So, you know, it's number, one of the number one killers of children in, uh, in the refugee context, in, in refugee camps. So it's one of the first vaccines that gets handed out in those camps. And it's, it certainly uh, keeps me humble. Absolutely. And I think you were speaking a little about some of the, the findings that we found in the global community with polio also, right? Yeah. So polio is what we like to call almost eradicated. You know, it's one of those, uh, it's one of those diseases that outside of some remote areas in Pakistan and some remote areas in Afghanistan, actually on the border of the two countries, um, that, that logistically are just hard to vaccinate because of conflict, it's essentially nowhere else in the world. And, um, and that's another you know, real success story of the vaccination movement. It, unfortunately, it, it becomes harder and harder to talk to people about vaccination for, against polio because people haven't seen polio cases, certainly not in the United States. Right. And I think that also, I think distribution of vaccines, we certainly have seen with the COVID-19 vaccine has become a challenge. So we've been looking at, um, you know, the importance of cold chain and the importance of being able to keep these vaccines in a, a way that is stable um, and be able to make sure they can be distributed. And this is a challenge that we've, you know, we really continue to look at um, both in the United States for certain vaccines, but certainly also in other countries that, that still have difficulty with uh, distribution of, of uh, vaccines due to the cold storage. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a challenge. I would actually argue that there are some some places in the in the world that do it better than the United States, and we've had challenges, uh, you know, kind of reinvigorating our cold chain for COVID. Um, you know, places like India, which only recently eradicated polio, um, probably have a little bit better kind of at least logistical sense. Although the vaccines are kept at different temperatures for COVID and for polio, you know, there there's certainly an enormous amount of challenges that get explored. You know, kind of once the vaccine arrives at the airport of the host country, that's that's what I like to say when the challenge begins. You know, the rest of that downstream of getting it into an arm or into a mouth, in the case of the oral polio vaccine, becomes much more challenging than the kind of manufacture and distribution of vaccines. And we're starting to see that, I think, with the COVID vaccine as we deliver it globally. Right. Using smallpox kind of as the, the, the quintessential example, we're, we're going back to like 1976 when um, Dr. Edward Jenner um, really had noticed that people who had gotten cowpox were protected from smallpox. And so I think that he also knew about this whole concept of varicilization. We're able to give small amounts of the liquid that comes out of some of these pox to individuals. And so was able to actually take the cowpox and was able to introduce that into another person. And so that was a very early example of how kind of vaccine development occurred back in the time before IRBs were there and before we were able to really do structured clinical trials. But we've just come so far from kind of looking at those early examples of how kind of vaccination can really um, improve things. But it's amazing that really what we're still talking about is, is being introducing small amounts of a organism into someone to be able to mount an effective immune response and be able to have that persistent memory that's able to then be able to maintain that immune response over time. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's amazing to me, and you, you, know, you certainly know this better than, than I do, you know, the, the technology to deliver that cleanly to our immune system, to have it just see what we want it to see 
um, to have the immune system respond in such a way that it is very uh, kind of efficient in, in generating the type of immune response we want with minimizing side effects, we've gotten better and better at it. And so the idea that vaccine hesitancy is growing as our technology and ability to create better vaccines is almost ironic. No, it is. You're right. And I think that, I mean, when we're thinking about vaccine and vaccine development, I mean, there's been so many different vaccines that have been developed over time. And really, the technology that we're talking about are different. So, I mean, you know, when we're talking about this early um, aerosolization and, and introduction of live vaccine, this is really something that we saw initially. And that was really kind of when we're using live vaccines. And we still do introduce a number of live vaccines, like the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, as well as um, certain other vaccines that we're seeing such as rotavirus very early in life. But what we're seeing really for adults is, is the importance of all of these other vaccines that are there. And so we kind of are using, you know, toxoid um, attenuated, toxoid vaccines, we're using attenuated vaccines, we're using DNA-based vaccines like hepatitis. Um, and now we're actually using these mRNA vaccines, which allow us to more rapidly develop specific antigens that are going to basically be recognized by the host immune system and develop a very effective, specific response against these pathogens. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, you know, I think, and again, you can speak to this, um, about the mRNA vaccines, my understanding is that they're, they're very easily tailored to different antigens. And that's one of the benefits of it is that you can tweak and change the kind of the message and change the protein that's presented much more efficiently than you could in previous vaccines. And it almost got lost in the COVID frenzy of, of information, but it's, it's an extremely agile type of vaccination that I think everyone should get excited about, about not just for COVID, but for other diseases. And I know that it's, it's, it represents a game changer in, uh, in kind of vaccine development. I think it does. And one of the things that's really interesting is, is that obviously as certain pathogens mutate or change, we're seeing resistant strains, we're able to then generate new messenger RNA sequences that match up with those, those variants of those proteins very easily. And as we're able to do that, we're able to then continue to give potent mRNA vaccines on a very quick basis. We can change the vaccine very effectively to make sure that we can make a minor change in one little bit to match the current resistance strains that are developing. And, you know, when we're looking back at flu or influenza, I mean, we typically start taking a look at the, the predominant strains in influenza that exists nine months before this, the influenza season begins. And then we start developing and being able to create those proteins through the, the methodologies that we're using. So it takes a long time to ramp up production and be able to produce an adequate amount of vaccine. Whereas with the mRNA production, we're able to very easily be able to create synthesis of the specific mRNAs that we need to, and in a very efficient way, be able to um, come up with some very potent vaccines in a very quick time for turnaround, which is really important. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. And, and you know, one of the things we always hear about is that you know we're you know that the pharmaceutical companies and the uh, and the public health authorities are essentially guessing as to what the dominant strains are going to be. That they're going to be guessing what the dominant strains are going to be. I think that uh, that makes sense and uh, kind of allows us to kind of respond uh, a little bit more agilely and a little bit more quickly, so that we're doing less guessing. No, I think it's very true. And then I think that there's also been a number of changes that we've seen in modern vaccines and vaccinology. So, I mean, one of the things that I think that's really been a significant change is, is that who would have thought that we could have a vaccine that could basically stop cancer um, or could essentially eliminate cancers as we know of it. And so this is something with the HPV vaccine that's so important. Yeah, you know, you know I think HPV gets a bad rap. Uh, you know, I've always drawn the comparison, at least with patients and, and family members when they're considering HPV vaccination, that hepatitis B really was the first sexually transmitted cancer-producing 
uh, vaccine. But because we give that on day zero of uh, or day one of life, um, there's much less controversy. Whereas, you know, I think the administration, you know, around adolescence kind of implies some sort of uh, behavioral uh, change that will occur if you vaccinate someone, which is unfortunate because it really is, I think, a, a good vaccine that should be uh, more widely used. Right, so this is when the social politics of, of the country actually may start actually interfering with true um, the medical science here. I mean, typically we're talking about for HPV vaccine, starting to talk about HPV vaccine starting at age nine or 10, um, and then actually starting to administer HPV vaccine starting at age 11 or 12, when you can give you know, two doses. Um, but I think that the reason this becomes so difficult politically is, is because people are saying, well, why are we giving this vaccine? How are we trying to prevent penile or cervical cancer or throat cancers? And I think that that tends to get caught up into the, a lot of the conversations about puberty and people are concerned about this for not accurate reasons. Yeah, I think the idea that somehow that your choice of public health vaccination is going to affect someone's kind of sexual health decisions or decision-making in adolescence is probably a little, a little bit, uh, giving, giving a little bit too much power to the vaccine. But I think, um, you know, part of the issue is, is that um, some of these discussions are, are, are not really about the vaccine. They're about behaviors that I think are stigmatized in society and the, the vaccine kind of get rolls up into that. And, and we're seeing that now with the, with the COVID-19 vaccine where we're, you know, it's become almost a political statement, whether you get vaccinated or not. No, absolutely. And I think that, you know, when we're looking at HPV still, I mean, 85% of people um, will get an HPV infection of some sort in their life. It may be a wart on their hand, or it may be something topical or something else. But I think that by providing you know, HPV vaccine, we not only can prevent the, the HPV infection, but we can uh, affect many of the different cancers that can come from that, which I think is really important. And that, that ties into, like you were saying, I mean, hepatitis B is, is incredibly potent, and we're giving that to newborns on day one or day zero of life, um, and it has incredible efficacy and long-lasting immunity for most people. Yeah, I tell people it's, it's one of the no-brainer vaccines, one of the ones that we, we don't question, we don't, we don't think about, but it really kind of solves one of, the, one of the same problems. And, you know, hepatocellular carcinoma rates abroad globally, you know, hepatitis B is one of the number one causes. And, uh, and we've really seen that disappear from the United States now that it's one of the required vaccines. Right. And I think that makes a huge difference. I mean, one of the things that we're looking at is, is kind of which vaccines do you need to get just a few times and which vaccines do you need to continue to get boosters or other information that's there. And so I think when we're looking at boosters, I think one of the important things is, is, is that um, I know you're an ED doctor, but when we're looking at things like tetanus or whatever, we certainly want to be able to create an ability to create protection um, from things like tetanus and diphtheria and pertussis at certain pivotal points in people's life. Um, and to try to introduce, introduce these vaccines as a preventative measure. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, that you know, one of the problems with boosters is some of the population that you're trying to hit isn't going to regularly um, interface with primary care or or regular healthcare appointments. And so, you know, from my vantage point in the ER, you know, the person that comes in with a laceration, their risk of tetanus is probably pretty low. I don't think I'm actually kind of concerned about clinical tetanus infection on most people that I see in in my urban ED in the middle of New York City, I think I use it as an opportunity to update people's vaccination, to update people's pertussis vaccination, um, you know, update their tetanus, and kind of think about it as a public health measure in order to access kind of an area of the population that otherwise probably wouldn't seek medical care for those boosters. 
Right. And I think this is the same thing. Often during pregnancy, we talk about certain you know, vaccines that we need to introduce, and tetanus is certainly one of those. So being, being able to give um, Tdap or tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis during each pregnancy is something that's important because what that allows us to do is it allows us to protect not only that person, but also to protect um, the children. And I think that it's important to remember that when we're looking at inferred immunity, a lot of um, antibodies, and most antibodies, all antibodies, really will be able to cross through the placenta. So maternal protection against certain um, pathogens actually is able to infer newborn protection for those same pathogens. And so that's why we talk about the importance of the vaccination for things like uh, pertussis and diphtheria and tetanus um, during pregnancy and also influenza. Um, and the similar conversations have really been ongoing right now about the COVID-19 vaccine as well. Yeah, and you know it's it's interesting because the whole concept of vaccination is is uh, is a very anti-individual thought. That's one of the things that I think w- where we see um, just in the history of vaccination, some of the greatest controversies have been this idea of individual liberty versus the uh, kind of the group responsibility or collective responsibility to one another. I agree. And so I think that not only is it something that's really we're doing for ourselves, and I explain this to patients all the time, is is that when you're being vaccinated, not only are you taking care of yourself, you're taking care of those people around you that that you love and interact and you see at work and you see at home and you, you interact with all the time. And I think one of the challenges that we've had recently has really been the stigma. And it could be the stigma for HPV vaccine. It could be the stigma associated with flu shots or with, with the COVID vaccine. But I think that sometimes it's actually the fear of the unknown or the fear of the fact that they don't know what's happening that's actually causing things. And I think that that, may, that stigma is based off of true disproportionate health care that's been given over time and problems in health care that have existed. But I think it's really important that we differentiate between historical problems and what's currently going on to help overcome that stigma. Yeah, agreed. I think we have to acknowledge our history in medicine in order to move past it. I think one of the things that we're seeing, I think, in, in, this, in the United States now with the kind of the supply of COVID-19 vaccine exceeding demand um, is that I think that we've, we've kind of vaccinated the people that are, that are very eager that we're lining up at mass vaccination centers. We, we've, we've vaccinated them. And I think there's this second population of people who aren't necessarily vaccine hesitant, but just want to have a conversation. And I think we're, we're seeing that in all communities, but especially communities where the, historically they just have a, a distrust of public health and the larger medical construct. They may distrust medicine, but they, won't, they don't distrust their doctor. And I think that is uh, an important distinguishing. Right. And so that's why it's, I think, really important that we're able to maintain that doctor-patient relationship and be able to have that association where people have that trust, because unfortunately, it's challenging when we're not able to build that and when people are only getting episodic care um, in urgent cares or in other locations. And we really need to try to make sure that we are having a way to kind of look at a preventative immunization schedule um, and evaluate on an annual basis what's going on and which immunizations people need to kind of catch up and to, to take a look at those updated boosters. Um, so let's touch really very briefly. I know that we didn't touch at all about meningococcal vaccination, but that's obviously very important for people that are living in closer um, conduit locations um, where they're near each other. And then we talk about it often in college students um, and in people that are you know, living in apartments that have multiple people or close together. And so that's really important for us to look at. 
But I guess we're kind of heading towards the end of time. So I just want to kind of get ready to summarize with some of the things that we talked about. We really covered some really important points. Um, and you brought up some really interesting areas that we're talking about when we're talking about the, the role of smallpox and how we were able to overcome that challenge and really kind of make sure we're able to, to take a look at this and how polio has been pretty much eradicated except in very few locations um, across the world. And so how we're gonna to continue to do with that, but it's important that we continue to look for things like measles and are able to be able to address this and make sure we're able to understand what else is going on um, to continue to obtain herd immunity over time and continue to look at these things while we continue to use different kinds of vaccines. Yeah, and I, you know, I think just, just to your point, you know, no, nothing about the eradication of smallpox the, the eventual eradication of polio was easy. So the challenges that we're seeing with COVID, I think kind of mirror those that we've seen in prior decades, um, prior challenges. It's gonna take a lot of hard work. It's gonna take door to door uh, campaigning and vaccination efforts. That is kind of unchanged from any, from any other campaign that we've done where we've been able to eradicate um, a disease. And I don't, I'm not suggesting that we will eradicate COVID um, or a lot of the other vaccine preventable illnesses, but we get them under such control that, that they become rarities in terms of, uh, in terms of having family members uh, sick with them or certainly to die, die from those diseases. Absolutely. So I think that it's really important that we all remember that we need to continue to maintain the routine um, scheduled vaccination, talk about boosters with our patients, consider things like pneumococcal and seasonal influenza, make sure we're talking about shingles with our older patients and pneumococcal vaccination. And all of the current guidelines for adult immunization schedules can be found on the CDC's website at www.cdc.gov slash vaccines slash ACIP is a way to kind of take a look at these adult immunization schedules to make sure that we're creating all of the opportunities. If it's during the ER visit, during the clinic, if it's in an urgent care location or during pregnancy, that we can really help find these patients when they need to get their routine vaccines and to not only give them vaccines in a certain situation, but really to bring up the conversation of, of routine vaccination and making sure we're taking care of adult vaccination and immunization as a preventative um, proactive measure as physicians. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think we need to take every instance. It's one of our one of our best weapons in fighting disease. And I think we should use every instance and every interaction possible to make sure that we're informing people and getting them vaccinated. Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure speaking with you about vaccination. I really appreciate it. I hope we're able to cover some really interesting points. And uh, I certainly admire all the fantastic work you're doing with Global Health as well as in the ED. So keep up the great work and it's been a pleasure. Likewise, it's been a pleasure as well. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash vaccine four. For all the episodes in this series, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash immunization. Thank you for joining us today.